This week's special guest is Alex Jump, who is the bar manager at Death & Co. in Denver, as well as the company's cocktail class manager. In our conversation with Alex, we talk about how working alongside chefs in the early part of her career had a major influence in terms of developing flavor and how food can relate to beverage. We also talk about Alex's co-founding the Focus on Health platform, an initiative dedicated to bringing health and wellness to the forefront of the hospitality world. And we finish off the podcast discussing the well-organized and structured methodology that is employed at Death & Co. to come up with the very unique beverage menus. Make sure you check out the Focus on Health website at fohealth.org. And as always, all the links we talk about are in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Industry Podcast. My name is Kip Saunders. I'm your host. With me is Dan Serretta, the brains behind the operation. Uh, I don't know about brains, but uh, yeah, behind the operation. <laughs> How <laughs> well, are you? How are you? I'm good. Everything's good. Nothing new to report. Well, that's that's good to hear. Uh, yeah, yeah. We'll keep the intro brief today because we got like sort of a bartending superstar on the program today. So we want to spend most of the time talking to her. Alex Jump will be joining us in just a minute. She is the head bartender at Death & Co. in Denver. So we'll bring her in just a second, get some housekeeping out of the way. If you like the show and you want to support it, the easiest way to do that is to subscribe, rate, and review. That helps us a lot. If you're in the industry and you want to be on the show, you should email us at info at theindustrypodcast.club or DM us directly at The Industry Podcast on Instagram. And we should say, as always, a big shout-out to Zach Hanna from at Zach Hanna Design for all the artwork he does for us. Tremendous and much appreciated. Yes, thanks, Zach. Okay, so let's, uh, without further ado, let's uh, get right into this. Alex Jump is with us. How are you, Alex? Hey, I'm so good. Thank you guys for having me today. Uh, thanks for joining the show. No problem. You've got an awesome action figure name. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Never gotten that one before. <laughs> I was always getting made fun of as a kid. Uh, oh, yeah. No, I think it's awesome. It's like you definitely, there should be an Alex Jump action figure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could see that. My a funny story, actually, my everyone I work with calls me Jump, but no one in my life ever before that has called me by my last name. And so when my parents came to visit in April, they really were like getting a kick out of how everybody would refer to me as Jump. Um, yeah. I think they just found that to be very funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I, I think that's an industry thing. I call a lot of people by their last name as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like familiarizes a little bit without being disrespectful. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I agree. All right. You can so, let me jump. Okay. All right. Jump. Let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> so, one of the things I wanted to ask you right off the jump, oh, now I'm just, this is going to be puns the whole time. <laughs> so, everybody is obviously super familiar. Anyone listening to this podcast by now certainly is very familiar with Death and Co., either from the original bar in New York or the book, which has become pretty much the Bible for all cocktail aficionados and uh and then the spot in la so one thing that struck me i was wondering like so you opened the spot in denver correct correct yeah okay so like what what i just was always interested like why was denver the third location is, is there something i'm not getting denver was actually the second location it was the second yeah. location before yeah, believe it oh. or not yeah. oh okay well that <laughs> yeah. makes me even more curious then. and also um, a bad researcher <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the Denver location opened March of 2018. So we're coming up on four years being open if we, you know, count the last year or so, which I mean, maybe that makes it closer to like seven years. 
uh, considering yeah, the last no year and shit. a half was like. But we get this question a lot. And, you know, I don't think that there's a perfect answer. I don't think that there's really an answer that makes anybody feel like satisfied, really. The best answer is that there was just a handful of things that, that made sense for our owners. The first one being that each of them have ties to Denver and or like mountain towns in different ways. Our owner, Alex, dated somebody whose family was from Denver, so they would come visit his family uh, frequently. So he just spent a good amount of time in his younger years visiting Denver. So he was already familiar with the city. Our owner, Dave, he grew up in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And so is very familiar with mountain towns and has, you know, friends, especially industry friends that already lived in Denver. So they were familiar with the city in that way too. And then owner Ravi Derosi grew up in Boulder, Colorado. Oh, so okay. they all had like their own little connections, but none of those I think really weren't being like, okay, we're going to open a bar in Denver. Like all of those are just kind of like, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. six degrees of separation to a city. You could probably like find a reasoning for like any city in the United States based on those reasonings. The, I think the, the better answer is that it was like a right place and a right time to have been approached by a person in Denver who was very interested in creating a space where there could be a death and Oh, okay, sure, yeah. So there's no good answer as no, long. No, long but that, it. that certainly makes sense. I, I just, I marvel at it because I have two bars and they're in the Twin Cities. And so they're basically in the same city, but it's still, I have like, it's one's at the deep end of Kitchener and one's at the top end of Waterloo. And I just find it already a pain in the ass driving back and forth between those two. So I can't even imagine having a bar in New York and then another one in Denver. Yeah, certainly. Um, I think that they've really set themselves up for success in having a really strong director level team and leadership teams in all of their locations so that they don't have to you know, be hel- helicopter parents, uh, right, you know, yeah. for in a lot of ways, they, they really let us run the show and, and they're there as um, operators and for bigger picture mm-hmm. stuff to move the company forward. So what was the, this like sort of the cocktail scene in Denver like before you guys opened the uh, Denver has an awesome cocktail scene and has for a really long time. Um, oh, okay. We definitely can thank Sean for all his hard work and really making sure that Denver has been recognized on a national front, um, especially uh, thanks to his bar, the uh, Williams and Graham, um, which is about to celebrate its 10 year anniversary. So, I, you know, I would say 10 years ago when he opened Williams and Graham, there were certainly not as many uh, great cocktail bars in Denver. But thanks to uh, the community's really hard work, there are some really amazing bars and restaurants and um, really cool food culture here. So, you know, I think that there's a wide range. There's not a ton of like craft cocktail bars there, but there's a lot of really amazing cocktail bars that are more like neighborhood vibey, less of like the, you know, grand grandiose like bar if that makes sense i don't know i don't know if that's like the best way to say it but what i've found personally living in denver is that there's like there are neighborhoods that have very different vibes about them throughout the city and there's really cool bars in every one of those neighborhoods that really embraces like it's its own neighborhood and its own vibe so in a lot of ways it's similar to where i grew up in the industry and that like every you know every bar has its regulars and the community is small so everybody knows everybody and there's like a good amount of like healthy competition in that way yeah, that's and that's so important. Like competition is the whole thing. People, I think, finally we're moving away from an area where people were like, "Oh, new bar opens up, that's bad for me." As opposed to new bar opens up, great because people like to bounce around. So if a new bar opens up next to you, 
then that's the area of town to go to, right? Totally. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So you mentioned how you started out. You came from Tennessee originally? Yeah, I moved to Denver from Chattanooga, Tennessee five years ago. So I moved to Denver about a year before I started working at Death & Co. So you grew up in ten- in Chattanooga? I did. Oh, yeah. Okay. I-, I feel like you should have a, a different accent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my parents aren't Southern. They, uh, My parents are actually Midwestern. Uh, oh. They uh, grew up in Ohio. And so they ended up in Chattanooga because of my dad's like med school and um, ended up deciding to stay because it was a really great place to raise their kids. Uh, so they always say that their kids are Southerners by accident. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, my parents don't have never said y'all, uh, you know, stuff like that. My parents don't really listen to a ton of country music. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of that was like learned through culture of growing up. Yeah, that's uh, it's interesting because uh, well, this is obviously an audio show. So what our listeners can't see is you're actually wearing a Willie Nelson T-shirt. But <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about you, when your first bartending experience in Chattanooga. I'm assuming that like what was the cocktail scene like there? Where is that where you developed sort of your love for craft cocktailing? Yeah, uh, yes, it is. My technically my first bartending job was actually in Florence, Italy, but I wouldn't call it bartending. I was like I worked at a wine shop where I poured wine and like slice charcuterie for people. So my first real bartending job was in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And the bar industry there is, it's changed a lot since I moved away. But, you know, nine years ago now when I was learning to bartend, there were almost no craft cocktail bars. Pretty much the majority of places that had great cocktail programs were really good restaurants. Mm. Um, It was a really interesting way to learn how to bartend. And I'm really grateful for it in a lot of ways. But it definitely was a different style of service. And I moved to Denver really craving having a cocktail bar bartending experience mm-hmm. um, because I never had had that. But, you know, it, it was a really good way to learn because I was taught a lot about, I was taught a lot from my mentors, but my mentors were chefs. So, oh, okay, yeah. you know, they taught me a lot about flavor and about service um, and food. And, you know, I, I, I feel like I owe very much of what I understand to be like a um, how to how to put flavors together in a drink because of them. And I'm very grateful to that. And also, you know, working in a place where you're serving people dinner that's, you know, averaging $75 a head at the bar is an invaluable character trait to have um, mm-hmm. as a bartender. But I certainly wasn't, you know, working until 2 a.m. and doing right. high-volume craft cocktail bartending. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the, the food influence on it, because we've had a few people on the show before who did start out in the kitchen and then ended up as bartenders. And they always talk about like, well, like that's how that's a game changer for them. My head bartender at Sugar Run actually had the same experience. And, and he says it's invaluable, too. So you were never physically in the kitchen, but you felt like you were mentored by the chefs. Very much so. Yeah. I mean, I had I had one I had a handful of bar mentors that taught me a lot that were bartenders, but the majority of the people that I worked side by side with every day and that taught me a lot about management and the you know the people that I could go to when I needed advice or needed guidance were almost always my chefs. So there yeah, I just didn't have a lot of people that were working at bars like, you know, Death and Co in Chattanooga, Tennessee <laughs> to, you know, teach me about round building or whatever it may be. A lot of that was right. like self-study. So yeah, you know, I think I think the first four or five years of my bartending career were spent, yeah, getting guidance from chefs in, in ways that have proven to be incredibly invaluable. Um, but very much so like understanding 
flavor uh, and and food and how food can be related to beverage and all of that. Mm-hmm. So I guess the, my next question is sort of like, what is when you decide to move from Chattanooga to Denver, why was it that did you had you already heard that there was a like burgeoning cocktail scene in Denver from someone else or like in my mind I never would think about Denver but and, and I, I know that makes me the ignorant one I'm also really terrible at geography so I'm not sure how close Chattanooga is to Denver but I feel like it's a long way. It's a long, it's a long way. Um, oh my gosh! I hope I never have to do the drive again. I would gladly never drive that drive again. It's like a. Uh, like 18 hour drive um, through mountains and shit too by the end of it right <laughs> no through planes it's like exclusively planes it's oh. just like flatlands and nothing um, okay because on the east of denver is just kansas it's just planes uh denver is like kind of one of the last cities before you get to the mountains in colorado so gotcha. um, yeah I, like I told you i was bad at geography <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's like nothing there it's horrible i moved to denver for a handful of reasons the first one being i had family here who work in f and b and i you know and like when we talk about people that have like had massive hands in shaping the culture of cocktails in Denver. They certainly are some of those people. So, you know, I've talked about it a lot, so I don't feel like weird about talking about it on a podcast, but basically I dated somebody for a really long time. He is a chef. He was a chef in Chattanooga. We dated for six and a half years. And on our five-year anniversary, we moved to Denver. So his sister and her husband, they've lived in Denver for over 10 years now and have been a part of the food and beverage scene here. They've owned bars and they've opened restaurants restaurants and they've owned a liquor store and they, you know, they're very ingrained in F&B here. So for five years before I moved here, we would visit them um, at least once a year, if not more. So it was a... So you kind of knew the city already. Yeah. 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 I kind of had like a friend, I already had friends, friendships that had been made right. out here and I ha- and I had family. So it was really easy decision of like a place to move, even though it was really far away from where I was from. And then on top of that, I already knew that Death & Co. was going to open in Denver. And so I moved here with the very specific goal of getting hired to work oh, really? for Death & Co. Yeah. Um, I was just a little early. <laughs> okay, so how, the, now this is fascinating to me. So, a, how did you know that they were opening? Or like, was it through your family connections? Or and b and b, like, how do you get the job? Like, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was it was partially through my family connections. They actually, funny enough, they hosted the the party for their Denver stop on their book tour for their first book. Death and Co. Modern Classics. So it's funny. It's funny to say that because tomorrow we're hosting the Denver stop for their book tour for their third book. um, Oh wow! At at the Death and Co. But um, it's a good spot for it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So they had. They already knew uh, Dave and Alex um, because of that, and um, so obviously they they were a little bit more in touch with what was with potential plans. But there had also been some like kind of funny, like weird little. eater articles here and there that were like, you know, death and co opening. And, and it was always, always all this incorrect information It was, you know, like in a basement bar underneath a hot dog shop and like, whatever. And <laughs> Isn't that, that is, please don't tell. <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> and all of that was just, you know, like press trying, you know, hopping on stories that weren't, you know, right. validated. Fake news, but, as they say. Yeah, fake, <laughs> fake news. They, they were close, but they just hadn't quite nailed it. So, yeah. yeah, there was like, there were murmurings here and there about it being real. And pretty much as soon as I had like legit confirmation that it was definitely going to open in Denver, then I, I felt comfortable like moving out here. And then how I 
I got the job, I, well, luckily I had some people in my corner that, you know, were mentioning my name uh, in rooms where my name needed to be mentioned. And I'm very, very grateful for that. So I had, you know, I had some people that would bring my name up anytime they had an opportunity to, and the conversation in a room turned to who they would be having manage the bar. And then uh, funny enough, I uh, competed in speed rack about a month after I moved to Denver. So I was really kind of the new kid on the block and it was my second speed rack. The first one I did in Nashville and I made the top eight in Nashville when I competed and I got knocked out in my first round. Um, And then in Denver, I had had about a year or so to practice and I was never competitive as a kid. I didn't like playing sports. I, you know, the only time I ever competed at any sport when I was in high school was when my parents made me do crew as a punishment for being (laughs) a bad teenager, (laughs) Um, (laughs) forced me to go be on the rowing team. So you know, I've, I've had found things I liked doing competitively. So I was pretty determined to win. So I moved to Denver and, you know, was really ready to win the competition and wasn't nervous one bit for speed rack, getting up ready for it, doing all the practice rounds and everything. And then two nights before the competition, somebody let me know that they had heard that Alex day was going to be one of the judges. Uh. And then I was like, (laughs) Oh my God, I'm going (laughs) to puke. Like I was so nervous. Um, because I wanted the job um, yeah. and it was my first time meeting him. And so, yeah, I went to speed rack. I didn't drink basically anything all day long. I was like stone cold, sober, like just so, so nervous and like just treated speed rack like a job interview, basically. Right. Um, and I'm sorry to not to interrupt, but we've had people yeah. on the on the show before who have been in that competition. And it's basically kind of a big party atmosphere for that competition, too. So for sure, from yeah. what I understand. So for you to stay sober, that's some diligence. Yeah. I mean, I was just so nervous. I couldn't even like imagine drinking anything. I think I maybe took one shot of sweet vermouth like the entire day. Um, (laughs) Surprised you weren't wasted. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and I won. And so. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Thanks. Um, (laughs) I was hoping that was the ending to the story. Because it was going to be like, I just got really nervous. I Uh, failed out. I I threw up on Alex. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they still give me the job. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So at the after party, I we got to chatting and, you know, they were like, well, like, you know, like we'd like to stay in touch. And then it was basically like eight months of just kind of me being in like a total nervous mess, feeling like, am I going to get the job? I, are they going to give it to somebody else? Like, I wouldn't recommend anybody going through the amount of like anxiety that I put my own self through for no mm. real reason. But basically at the end of it, they hired me. They hired me to be the, the bar manager. Well, and let me just, because I, I just want to read this because I don't want to, I'm going to read it from your bio because I don't want to fuck it up. But like, <laughs> it's obviously here, here are some of Alex's accomplishments. So speed rack, Lustau Solera standout. I don't even know which, that, what that one is. Heaven Hill Bartender of the Year, which is a big deal. Bombay Sapphire, Most Imaginative Bartender. Like, you, you've gone through a lot of these competitions and come out in the top end of it a lot. Yeah, to, well, to clarify, I haven't won all of those, but um, I have competed in them and, and placed very highly. Um, mm. I did win Lustau Solera standout, which was... What is that? A, that's Lustau is the, they make sherry and, and right, primarily yeah. sherry. But, but what's the competition today. is what I mean. Yeah. Oh, it's this awesome competition. If anybody's listening and they do it again next year, please enter. It's so much fun. Um, but basically, I mean, it's a cocktail competition. So you mm. submit, you enter and submit a cocktail recipe and then they do like regionals. They they knock it down from like all of the submissions to regionals. And then at least when I competed, you traveled to wherever the regional was and presented your drink there. And then they knock that down to like a top 
eight. And then they took the top eight people to Spain. And then oh, there was a, a final competition. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so much fun. So, but yeah, you know, I haven't won a ton of competitions, but I um, competed in a bunch, competed. like definitely, yeah, and done well. Like, and the other thing I was going to ask you about was what's the another thing I didn't recognize? You're a bar five day graduate. What is bar five day? I don't even know what that is. Bar five day is part of the it's part of the bar smarts family basically. So it's oh, okay. like the, the final course that you would take with them. It lasts for five days if you can believe it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's in New York. It happens every January. Uh, you have to apply. Uh, you apply to attend uh, in the year prior to it happening, and um, it, it is a it's a costly certificate to get, but it's very educational. It's it's focused a little bit more on uh, spirits tasting and history, but it really really educational. I often when I'm when I'm explaining it to like a bar a bar guest that asks you know like just a normie um, I normally explain it as like you're like you know graduate school for okay bartenders. for bartending and a couple a couple that I missed here which are maybe the two most important you were nominated for bartender of the year at the 2020 Tales of the Cocktail that's incredible and you were also included on the Forbes 30 under 30 in, for food and beverage in 2021 like these are big accolades. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I told I told yeah. you, Alex jumped the action figure as a bartending <laughs> star. Um, okay, so I'm done blowing smoke up your ass now. We'll, we can just talk about other things, but I, I did want to get that out there because I think people are already going to be impressed that you're like running Death & Co. in Denver, but it, like there's a lot of other shit you've done as well. It's pretty impressive. So you've definitely dedicated your life to this. I have, yeah, for better or worse. You know, yeah. um, I think a lot of the reason why people know who I am now is to, to be honest, because I've spoken out a lot about why dedicating our lives to this industry can be like not so great at times. Yes. Yeah. I was going to leave this to the end, but let's pivot to that right now because it just came up naturally. So yeah, like, talk to us a little bit about your initiative here and the podcast and what it's all about. Yeah. So, so speaking of competitions, there's Bombay Sapphire's most imaginative bartender, which kind of was the the impotence for creating a company called Focus on Health that I founded with my uh, business partner, Lauren Paler. She goes by LP. Um, she lives in Washington, D.C. So basically the long and short of it is that during Most Imaginative Bartender, they, they ask you, you know, it's a really cool competition for bartenders specifically because they want to know who you are as a person and not necessarily uh, whether or not you make good drinks. Like obviously you make good drinks. Um, you know, most of us make good drinks. Um, right. But what else is what else is there about you? Um, and they want to know what drives you creatively. Like, what's the thing that's back in the back of your brain that allowed you to create this really good drink? Like, that's a really cool concept. And so, I had always wanted to enter into it because I've never really found myself to be a person who would want to do Diageo World Class. It just doesn't really seem like the competition for me. Um, and so, I kind of view most imagined bartender as on a similar level, but maybe more of my speed. And so I decided I had decided to enter and I wanted to enter the first year that we were opening Death & Co. And it was just like really poor timing. They were like, you were, the submissions were like two weeks after we opened. I was like, well, this doesn't make any sense because, mm-hmm. you know, if I, if I place, which obviously I, I should, because what's the point in entering if you don't think you're going to win, right. then like, I can't really be like going to London or like competing for this while we're opening this bar. So Mm -hmm. I didn't enter. So I spent like an extra year thinking about my drink concept and I had really honed in on like, I'm going to put out this really amazing drink. It's going to be an amazing drink. 
And so when they turned up, when they brought the competition live for 2020, which it started in actually 2019, they had kind of restructured the whole thing. And it was more about like, who are you outside of this drink that you're going to make? So uh, what was the drink we need to know? Um, it was a Bombay Sapphire Martini that was inspired by, um, I kind of like, I really enjoy making drinks that can be conceptual, um, not just in the physical drink itself, but also mentally and emotionally. Like I'm very interested in, in finding ways to kind of tie all those things together. So the drink actually really paired with like my purpose for the competition in general. But the drink was a martini using uh, Bombay Sapphire and it had a uh, a seaweed and pineapple infused fino sherry in it, a, a skin contact pinot gris. Uh, but it was it was inspired by a song by Sergio Simpson off of his album A Sailor's Guide to Earth. It's a very important album to me. It and for a long time I didn't really fully understand why. I just felt very emotional when I listened to it. It was in a song, an album that I listened to a lot. Um, and then I started reading articles, um, interviewing him about this album. And what I kind of found in all these articles was that he had honestly really been through something very similar yet different to what I had experienced in my bartending career. And that sometimes you love something so much that you let it like consume you. Um, and like, how do you find balance in between like the art that you create and the person that you want to be outside of the art that you create? And so like the, I mean, that album is just like a really beautiful story about life mm -hmm. um, and about passion and about art and like how you can find ways to like, live a happy life, even when you have like maybe a greater calling or something like that. And like, certainly he does. He's, it's very clear that he is like a person that was like put on earth to like create music. And so that really spoke to me because like I had been going through this time in my life where like I got broke up with a person that I'd been dating for six and a half years. And I was living by myself for the first time ever in my life ever. And I was opening this world famous bar and, right. you know, had like a lot of eyes on me. And so it was kind of like this, I just had this pivotal time in my life where I was like basically finding out who I was for the first time ever. Hmm. And I was allowing myself the opportunity to understand who I was not as a bartender, but like as this single you know, 27 year old girl living in Denver alone and like dating um, yeah. and, you know, like having to find hobbies because you can't just work 70 hours a week or like whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that drink was kind of like a representation of why I was entering the competition, which was I had decided that I was going to make the, the most imaginative bartender competition, my platform for being able to ask just the simple question of, what's the point of like being in this competition and being the best bartender in the world if I'm going to die from addiction, depression, you know, overconsumption, whatever it may be. Like if this job is going to kill me because I don't have access to, you know, proper health care, mental health care, uh, substance abuse care, you know, like if I don't have good employers who care about me, like what's the point? of being the best bartender if it kills me. Right. Um, and that, and that like, so that song and that album really kind of was like, gave me the ability to create this drink that like gave me the platform to talk about that in front of really important people. And so you start like you, you, they get, because like you said, in the competition, they're, they're interested in your story as well as your cocktail. So this then leads you to tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but like this then leads you to 
think about starting your company and your podcast because so this actually so I made it to the I made it to the finals of the competition and part of the finals of the competition was actually that you had to because part of the prize was a grant was a $20,000 grant. And so they wanted to know, well, if you win this grant, what are you going to do with it? And so I had to kind of take this idea of like, I want to help this industry be better. Like I want this industry to be a better place to, to live and to work. How do I take that? And how do I present something to the judges that's like, okay, if you give me $20,000, then this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where Focus on Health came into play. And they were really like, I mean, it was really lucky and, and really cool because they gave us money. They gave us money for the competition to like be the best. So like I was able to take that money and go to my friend who owns a design firm in Denver and be like, will you make me a logo? Which is like, that's expensive. Like, so like to be able to, (laughs) to be able on like their dime to get a cool ass logo and branding and, you know, custom lettering and color palettes and like have that all built out. And I was able to take some of that money and go to mover and shaker and ask them to make pins so that we could, you know, like have pins and stuff like that. So that was, that was really cool. And I'm, yeah, it was awesome. So I basically went to the competition and I presented, you know, like, this is what we, this was what we would do as a company. And I didn't win MIB, but I actually won the portion of the competition that was specifically based on the grant. Oh, but wow. I didn't win, but I didn't win the grant because I didn't win the competition, which is like oh. a massive flaw. <laughs> it's a massive flaw in the competition. And I really, yeah, that doesn't sound do. right. <laughs> I hope that they change it yeah. because it just, it, it was definitely a little bittersweet. Cause I was like, yeah. man, you're telling me that my pitch was the best, but because I didn't perform best in the cocktail parts of the competition that I don't get the money. And that's, right. so that was like a bit, of, a bit of a disappointment, but they were, they were incredibly supportive of us afterwards. But I basically returned home to Denver February of 2020 from the competition and kind of just, was just like, I don't know, I, I need to get back to work. I don't really know what I'm going to do with this. I've made an Instagram for it. I have branding for it, but I'm, you know, also like running this bar. So I don't really know. And right. at that same time, my now business partner LP reached out to me and she and I have known each other and been acquaintances through the industry for a long time. And she was just basically going through her own journey and her own path and had kind of had similar experiences, especially with her health. And so we ended up chatting and she was supposed to fly to Denver. So we could be like, okay, well, like what is, you know, we were going to sketch out a business plan and kind of like look at what this business would be in an ideal world. And do we think we'll be good business partners? And, and I'm like, feeling like there's a pivot. Coming. <laughs> yeah, there's a, <laughs> yeah her fly, I think her flight to Denver was like March 14th or something. Right, yeah. So, so yeah, so we, you know, we canceled it and we ended up just launching online because we were like, well, I mean, I guess not better now than ever. Like yeah. we have, we're sitting at home with nothing to do. We can create programming. And, um, and I had wanted to have a podcast show through the, the brand anyways. And um, that took a, a little bit longer to get going, um, but we launched the podcast in November and I did a full first season and have intentions to finished my second season. I've put out one episode on the second season and I have recently taken a step back because it's just been a little bit more than I can manage. So what's the format? Like what, uh, what do you talk about on the show? Do you have guests? What, like, how does it work? I do have guests. Uh, that's, that's the main format. I haven't really done, I haven't done a single episode where it's just me by myself. Originally I wanted to actually mostly talk to like healthcare and wellness professionals. Like I wanted the theme of the show to be like, I'm talking to therapist XYZ and we're going to talk about how like having, you know, repetitive negative guest interactions affects your overall well-being or whatever. And I've had some episodes that are like more featured featuring that content, um, but they don't perform as well <laughs> as uh, episodes with people that people know. 
So uh, I yeah. <laughs> I featured more <laughs> I featured a lot more people in our industry, but what it's ended up being more is a place for people to share uh, stories that people can relate to, have open conversations about what in our industry needs to be better, have uncomfortable conversations. That's definitely my number one goal is to talk about things that make people, you know, like a little uncomfortable. Like <laughs> there's this episode, I can't remember who I was talking to, maybe my friend Brandon, where I just like shared the story about how I was like bartending in service while I was having a really bad day. I was like really tired. I just like couldn't stop crying while I was like, bartending in service while. And then this guest was like, can we take a picture in here? And I'm like crying in the back. So it's just like, you know, being able to show people that, you know, like it doesn't matter if you are working at like Death & Co or if you work at TGI Fridays, like mm-hmm. we're all in this together and like this could be a really hard industry to work. So like, let's talk about the things that need to change and like start finding solutions. So that's kind of like the, the main point of the show. That's an interesting point, too, because you're completely right. Like, you can work in a high-end spot like Death & Co., where mostly you would assume that people are into craft cocktail culture or cocktail nerds are coming there, right? And Or, like, a a different class of people and then at TGIF. But at the end of the day, shitty people come into all the places and clueless guests come into all the places. And so you, someone working at TGIF can have the exact same experience as someone working at Death & Co., yeah. Yeah. Or like I was, I was, it's funny. I was like talking, I've been checking in with all of our bar team, uh, just doing like one-on-one check-ins with everybody lately. And um, I asked, uh, I was asking one of our uh, team members, you know, how they were doing or whatever, but somehow the conversation kind of came about to like this same conversation. And he said like, yeah, you know, it's just like before I worked here, I kind of like thought about it as being some kind of like magical <laughs> yeah. bar where, you know, like you don't kind of go through the same struggles as any other bar. But then I start working here. It's like, oh, OK, like, you know, we have a we have to remind people to date their wines just like any other bar. I know it's so because <laughs> I kind of have the same ever. feeling like we all have this like <laughs> mythical idea of Death & Co or like the aviary or like, you know, like all these places yeah. that but at the end of the night, a, it's like the same manager at every bar. Like who didn't fucking date this cabinet throwing it away who takes a picture. <laughs> I like I, I'll take a picture of like three different bottles of wine same same bottles of wine yeah. open at the same time and i just same send thing. it to my staff yeah you still got yeah. this dick you gotta deal with <laughs> yeah. That's it. We're, we're just like you <laughs> it's like a, it's like the like tabloids when it's like you know they're yeah. like celebrities they're just like us put their pants like, on one leg yeah. at a time yeah <laughs> same bar <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> yeah we, uh, okay. we all go through the same shit well, it's, uh, that's super cool. And people actually should, should check out your podcast. We'll put all that info in the actually, show Actually, what's the name of the podcast yeah. for the yeah. listeners at home? Um, it's just called Focus on Health. Um, yeah. But we also have uh, we have two other podcasts under our family, too. We have No Proof, which is hosted by Josh Gandy. He is a sober industry person who lives in Columbus, Ohio. He's awesome. And he interviews, for the most part, other people who work in our industry that are also sober. Um, mm. It's really, really enlightening and cool to hear their experiences and see how relatable they can be to our own experiences. And, and then uh, LP has a podcast called Currency Exchange. Uh, where she's chatted with people that work in our industry all over the world, which is awesome as well. So, so yeah, so similar to what we do here. So that's good. So as we were talking about like podcasts that we have been appreciating 
as well and trying to promote some of those as well. So we'll start promoting these on the show as well because, uh, yeah, like that's basically it sounds like that's very similar to our podcast because that's what we've been doing basically is talking to people all over the world who work in the industry. It's been super enlightening. It's also like we found great reaction from people who are in the industry and people who are not in the industry who like just wanted to want to or fascinated by it. But for me personally, my journey over doing this, what are we at, 87 episodes or something like that now? Yeah, this is number 87. Oh, I fucking nailed that one, eh? (laughs) Unbelievable. (laughs) Is that, like, I have learned so much about doing a job that I've been doing for 30 years. And, like, just from talking to people from all over the world about how they approach their job and also, like, some of the issues with the job. Like, I've just, like, it's been just so enlightening for me. So that's, like, I I assume that, that your partner has the same has gotten the same experience. And now I know yours is a little bit more expo- focused on like the health side of it, but yeah. Do you find the same thing talking to no, people? No, yeah, definitely. No, it's yeah. honestly, it's become one of my favorite. It's become one of my favorite ways to connect with people because it is really, yeah. it's really cool to hear other people's experiences. It's also for me, very rewarding when people that don't work in our industry, like want to listen right. to these shows and like want to ask, you know, it, I think especially like having come up in uh, the South and bartending in the South where there's still a lot of like deep-seated, you know, issues, especially with class and, you know, all, what all of that kind of stuff when it comes to working in F&B. Like I know, I, you know, when I, when I first decided I was going to like be a bartender, my parents were like, what the fuck? Uh, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, to be fair, they had just paid to put me through college. So I think that was probably a pretty big shock to be like, I'm not just going to go be a bartender. Yeah. You know, now now they're like, we never could have known that this is like what it would have been and turned out like. Sure. Um, and maybe the part of that's like generational. But I definitely think like in the South as well, there's like a there's an additional layer, mm-hmm. like a, cl- a class thing. And maybe that's all of the United States. Oh, to be yeah. honest. I don't think that it's like I don't know if it's necessarily like specific to the South. So maybe it's more just like the times are changing, but it's very rewarding to get to talk to people who don't work in our industry and want to know about it. It's also like super rewarding to know that I have a career that I like actually give a shit about and that I'm excited to do and like that there's so many multifaceted options within it that I get to do and that I've gotten to travel the world because I'm a bartender. You know, it's like I'm always grateful that I have a job that I both get paid to do and I enjoy doing, not just Mm -hmm. like I have a job because it pays me really well and then I like enjoy my weekends or whatever. You know, like there are a lot of people that live their life that way. Uh, yeah, this is. Uh, I want to talk about uh, pivoting to a different conversation now, but uh, just this just reminded me about talking about people who listen to the show who are not in the industry. We should give a shout out to our old university buddy Tony, who listens every week. Oh, so yeah. we've never done that yet. So Tony, thanks for listening. But uh, <laughs> we were just. I just needed to do that. I've been thinking a lot lately about cocktail craft cocktail craft cocktail culture that is not as easy to say as you might imagine um craft cocktail culture and craft cocktailing in general and cocktail bars and i think that you're uniquely qualified to talk about this so do you feel like there's a ceiling to this like how how much further can we go in the area area of craft cocktailing because it's like we're all borrowing ideas from different places and trying to put our own spin on it and expand it but is there a limit to it or do you feel like this is something like music that can just keep going no i don't think it's like music i mean maybe like every you know i don't know i think it's like music i don't i think that i mean every time we put out a new cocktail menu at death and co i'm like blown away by Mm. the by the uniqueness i mean i think I mean, it's like there's always going to be new people turning 21. 
or there's right. always going to be new people that have decided to start drinking after like living their life, not drinking or like, there's always going to be people who don't drink, who decide they want to come into the bar and try a non-alcoholic cocktail for the yeah. first time. You yeah. know, there's, it, it's funny. Like, yeah, I don't think that there's like a limit. I think that, I don't think that this is like a 15 minutes of fame thing for our industry. I think that we'll continue to have people excited about it. And I think that. But is it like a bubble? Like, like here's what I'm sort of getting at, because obviously it's going to come back at some point, because when craft cocktail culture started, like if you read that book, A Proper Drink or whatever, from like starting back in London in the early days, then it sort of went away for a while and then it got reinvigorated when some of those ideas came to New York and et cetera. Do you think there's going to be a lull and come back or do you think we're just going to, we're on like a, like if it was a graph, (laughs) is is it going to go up and down like the Rockies or is it going to just keep going up or is it level off? I think it'll just keep going up because I mean, craft cocktails or like cocktail, drinking cocktails in Europe never went away. Right. You know, it went away here because we weren't allowed to drink alcohol legally. Uh, right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And it took like, this is actually really cool. Like the, speaking of bar five day, like one of the people that you get to sit in front of at bar five day is Dave Wondrich who wrote imbibe and punch. Like he's one of the lecturers and he's one of the partners for bar five days. So you get to listen to him, you know, tell these really cool stories about history and how everything is, how, how our history is intertwined. And I'm, I'm not going to tell the whole thing because I'm going to do a bad job at doing it. I'm going to fuck it up, but I'll give like the cliff notes. And it's something that I often talk about in cocktail classes where I'm not being recorded. So I don't feel the fear (laughs) of saying it wrong, but you know, like he talks a lot about cocktail culture in the United States. And it's like, obviously, you know, before prohibition, we had amazing, you know, like for that time, like amazing bars and like these very famous bartenders, like all over the U S like making drinks and drinks were being published in newspapers. That's how we know what the original old fashioned recipe is, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of those bartenders when prohibition happened, moved to Europe and kept bartending in Europe because they could, because they could keep their job. And then he talks a lot about like what happened in America, basically from, from prohibition ending to, like Dale DeGroff working at the Rainbow Room. Uh-huh. And it's really interesting to like look at history and like understand from a historical perspective, like why craft cocktails didn't come back immediately. And there's like a lot that's like intertwined into it. But like one of them being like both of the world wars, the Great Depression, and then the rise of uh oh, I always I forget the name of this time period of like basically when like when like fucking fast food and TV dinners were invented. I can, why can't I think of the like time in history that it's called? See, I told you I was going to sound like an idiot trying to talk about No, no, this, no but, you got it. Yeah, I can't think of it either, but I know what you're talking about. So um, I've, <laughs> but like, good. you know, like the, the invention of like TV dinners of like preservatives, um, you know, like pasteurized food, like, like all of that stuff, like all of that being created, mm-hmm. it basically shifted our culture like completely away from handmade ingredients and like local ingredients and took it to like this world of like, you can have whatever you want. And a lot of that drove our culture away from what we would now consider to be like, you know, craft or like local and all of that. Yeah. Like it leads to the advent of like the blender as a way of making a drink or like those. Right. And using like, yeah, juice in a gun and like stuff and like that. The powder. How about the powder that makes juice? Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so, you know, that combined with the world wars and there was a massive shift in what people wanted to drink because there were a lot of people who kind of 
basically the trend of culture at that time was like to basically stop drinking whatever your ancestors drank, to not drink what your dad and your grandpa drank because you were mad at them, right. like for putting you through this. Mm-hmm. Also, vodka was introduced to the United States for the first time. He also talks a lot about how like that's why tiki was really popular during World War II, because it was like escapism, like mm. to basically escape from your normal existence. Um, So basically it's like, it's just like really cool to kind of like look at this trail of history and like kind of understand like a lot of factors that have like affected how Americans drink. So we just did uh, our crack researcher, Dan just came up with the period. It's the golden age of capitalism is the period you're talking about. So yeah. 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 Um, So so I don't know. I don't know exactly what, I don't know what happened in the late 90s, early 2000s that made that change. And started to come back, yeah. But yeah. Some of it's cyclical, I would imagine, right? Like people get tired of, just like the 80s was a very plasticized sort of decade where it was like the whole Gordon Gecko greed is good sort of idea and like lots of blow <laughs> and, like, yeah. and like synthesized music was big. And we're all coming back to realize that I think that that also was like a super creative time for music as yeah. well and that we need to appreciate it. But like, do you think that that's, that sort of whole thing had an effect on the cocktail culture as well, where it's just like, yeah, like just give me something that you just add ice to that machine over there and it pumps out something fruity. And then now, and then people, then there is, there's an inevitable backlash to that where people come back to like, no, I want something that's been made with care and, yeah. creativity. Yeah, I see what you're saying, but I feel like we've created a world now where like you can literally have out anything you want at any given time and like there's so like I feel like the majority of people like exist in this weird like cross blending of like styles of people where like the same person like loves fast food and like eating Taco Bell every day, but then like, we'll come spend $50 on cocktails. At yeah, well, that's how they can afford it. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I feel like, but you know what I mean? I feel like we've just yeah. created, we've created this world now mm. where it's like, you can have everything and anything yeah. and nothing at the same time where and that wasn't but, really the case years ago. Yeah, that's true for sure. And that's a good thing, right? Like you should be able to appreciate I always love, like, if you've seen the movie Sideways, that scene where Paul Giamatti just loses it, and then he's just, like, he had saved this, like, one fucking bottle of wine for however long was going to crack it open on his 10th wedding anniversary or whatever, and then they got a divorce, and he finally cracks it open at his ex-wife's wedding. He flees the (laughs) wedding, and then goes to, like, a Whataburger or whatever, and then just drinks (laughs) it. Right, yeah. Yeah, and that's great. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So it, it is good that we're in that sort of area now. So I just, we're going to let you go soon because you've given us some time. But the one more thing that I think that but probably if I didn't ask you about, then there'd be backlash on our show notes, is that how do you, as a bartender or the, and, and the person who runs the program at Death & Co., like how do you guys come up with your cocktail list? What do you think is important in coming up with a cocktail list? And how do you make it unique from, like, say, other Death & Co.'s even? Sure. Yeah. We have a really organized method for making our menus. I've never worked at a bar that was as like systematic about how it happens and like structured. That's what I'm trying to say. I've never worked at a bar that was so structured when it comes to writing a new menu and it's for the best. Absolutely. But it, it creates opportunity to be creative in different ways by creating borders that you have to work within. So how we write new menus at the bar is it, it takes about three months to write a new menu. Our menus last for six months long. So we'll launch a menu. 
you get three months to make that menu without thinking about new drinks. And then about halfway through the current menu, you start working on the next menu for the next Mm. season. So we literally just launched our fall winter menu a month ago. So we're, we have two more months before we'll start working on our spring summer menu. We, so we wipe the slate clean every time. So we trash everything and we start over. That includes cocktails, wine by the glass, for the most part, beer, some beer stays, um, but for the most part, beer, um, you know, sake, cider, the whole thing. It's a massive task. We let our entire bar team be involved. So every bar member gets to make a drink. If you're a bar back or a bartender, the only exceptions to that rule, or if you have only, if you haven't worked for us for a certain number of certain amount of time, you know, if we hired you, if we hired you like a month before we start doing menu development, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, we're not going to yeah. be like, okay, learn all of these drinks. And also like, let's make some new cocktails even though <laughs> yeah. you like barely understand what it's like to work here. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But for the most part, everybody makes drinks. Um, if you're a newer bar back, maybe you'll like be mentored with a bartender while you do it. And it, it like, I don't, I don't know how nitty gritty you want me to get into it. Um, very, very. Okay. So it start. I'm like, all right. So I wake up in the morning. Um, <laughs> um, Get granular. <laughs> we, we start with a letter to the bar team um, announcing that it's menu launch. Um, it outlines the menu and the, the sections and how many drinks will be in the section. Um, and what we, you know, ideally, you know, normally the menu structure is about the same. We have six sections or between five and six sections dependent. Each section should have between five and six drinks in them. And they kind of go in order. There's like, a low ABV drink, there's a drink that should have a non-alcoholic option. And then there's what we call like, you know, regular drinks, just like plain drinks, just drinks that are, have nothing special about them other than their drinks. And then the last drink in the menu is luxury of, of every section. So there's kind of like a format. Um, so we kind of detail that out for the team. We'll make note of like any kind of style that we, if there's things we want to see, like for instance, Death & Co. in the East Village was famous for a long time for not carrying vodka. So we don't have a lot of like vodka drinks in our backlog of like things in our back pocket we can make for guests when they ask for vodka drinks. Mm-hmm. So like we always need a vodka drink on the menu because we're trying to like create a, a grouping of drinks. Um we weirdly enough, like as a company, don't have a ton of like whiskey sour variations that use egg white. So like we're trying to like start adding some drinks that are whiskey sour with egg white on the menu so that we have those in the future to like pull back when somebody asks for like a bar choice. Um, So we'll ask for certain things like that. We'll maybe list like if there are certain brands we want to make sure are featured on the menu, we'll like let the team know that. So we send out that email, that letter to the staff. And then we have like a Google form that the team fills out. It's it's a good way to do it because it's first come, first serve. It like timestamps it. So like I can know who submitted it because I'm sure plenty of people who work in bars understand how this happens, but like they, everybody works together behind the bar and suddenly everybody's been talking about Jamaican rum and then like seven people submit a drink using yeah. Jamaican rum. You know? <laughs> yeah, sure. You're like, okay, yeah. <laughs> like, I know there's 30 <laughs> drinks on the menu, but we can't have seven of them using Jamaican rum. So um, that's like a, so we basically have a Google form and it asks just, you know, like what style of drink are you making? And they have to pick between a Collins, a sidecar, a daiquiri, an old fashioned, a martini or a flip. Like you got to tell us which one of those it is. Um, and then we just ask some questions like, do you know what's going to go in the drink? Like, what are your plans for it? Is there like a theme? Do you know what glass it's going to go in? Do you know what garnish you want it to have? What drink is it inspired by, et cetera, et cetera. And they have to basically submit their, their submissions for their drinks. We don't allow anybody to make drinks behind the bar prior to tastings. So you can't like be workshopping your drink behind the bar. 
Um, definitely not without having asked a manager and definitely not to serve to a guest and definitely not during service. So kind of like, you know, there's no real time that you should be ever be mixing a drink behind the bar. So really we ask our bartenders to write down their recipes. We spend a lot of time writing before we ever like mix drinks in person, which is a really difficult way to learn how to workshop drinks, but it ends up making you a much better bartender when you understand flavors in your head without having to physically mix them. But it's a tough learning curve to get to that point. But after about one one or two menus of development, it kind of clicks in a way. And then we go through rounds of tasting. So we divide the bar team up into groups and we do like peer review, basically. So everyone will in the group, it's normally only a group of like five to six people because like having 13 people in a room tasting a drink with opinions is like too many people. Yeah. So a group of like five to six people per group and everyone will come and present their drinks and they'll take, we'll taste them as a group and we'll give feedback, give constructive criticism to each person to make the best drink possible. A lot of drinks are finished in the first round of tasting. And then some drinks have to come back for like a second round of tasting just to kind of finalize them. But we do have a rule that if you've mixed a drink like four or five times in one go and you've still not like perfected it and you have to like set it down or walk away. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like doing your hair in the morning. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then, yeah. And then from there, we write out menu copy, get it designed and send it to print. Well, that that's good. Like, wow, that was perfect. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. Let's like that process. Cause that's like, I just learned like three things there. <laughs> I've been doing this for 30 years. So I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you breaking all that shit down for us. And anyone, this is a masterclass in a very small period of time. And we try and keep these podcasts to a to a time limit where people still want to listen to them but <laughs> but uh, but like this even that is a little masterclass so i hope people listen to this and i really appreciate you coming on the show because i when i reached out to you i don't even know how long ago it was now but when you said yes i've been excited about talking to you since that point so thanks so much for doing this alex it was super informative and interesting and, and we went in a few different directions which is exactly what i was hoping from this show so we really appreciate you coming on Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I think that you probably reached out maybe like three or four months ago at this point. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've <laughs> had some we, time to noodle on it. We've been fortunate to be lucky to have people responding to the podcast now. So we are booked a fair amount in advance. And it's, we're, we can't believe it sometimes, too. But yeah. And to get someone like you on the podcast is a big deal for us. So we appreciate it. Thanks for doing it. And best of luck with the new working already jumping into the spring and summer list. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and before you go, uh, what's the best way to check out your website, Focus on Health? Yeah, uh, Focus on Health's website is fohealth.org. Unfortunately, Focus on Health was taken, so fohealth.org. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We also have Instagram, fohealth. We have a Facebook, but we're uh, more active on Instagram. And you can reach me at uh, on Instagram at axljump, axljump. Feel free to message me with any questions. I'm, I always answer. I don't leave anybody on red. Perfect. Put all those things in the show notes as well. Thanks again, Alex. You're awesome. We appreciate you doing this. Thank you very much. Yeah.